From breaking news to local stories happening where you live, this is the Jill Bennett Show podcast. We are starting, though, with something you might have heard in the news. The B.C. government is proposing giving Indigenous groups more decision-making powers when it comes to public land in this province. It would require a major overhaul of the Land Act, and it would then enable agreements with Indigenous governing bodies to have joint decision-making power. And again, this would deal with public land. The decisions then made alongside the minister in charge of lands. Some information has been put out about this. Many questions have been raised about this. We've heard from business law firm Macmillan LLP saying the amendments that are being proposed would essentially give Indigenous groups a legal veto power over decisions that have to do with Crown land. From everything we can see, what the government's proposing to do is to make amendments to the Land Act so that Indigenous groups will be able to make decisions to have an actual legal veto over decisions under the Land Act. Right now it's the minister, um, the minister that makes these decisions, and the Act says they have to be done in the public interest generally. And we understand the government to be proposing a change that would allow Indigenous groups to have the power to make those decisions and, and require their approval as well. That is Robin Younger with uh, the group, uh, the business law firm, Macmillan LLP. Well, joining me now to talk a bit more about this is Kevin Falcon, the leader of BC United. Thank you so much for taking some time today. Uh, Thanks so much for doing this. A lot of questions are being raised about this, and it can be found on the the engage.gov.bc.ca website, but still not a lot of answers. What is your take on what is actually being proposed here? Well, all kinds of red flags are going up on this issue. Uh, I'm very, very concerned about the the phony sort of engagement process that's underway right now. And I say phony because... Uh, it's been widely reported, and I believe it, that the NDP plan on actually uh, putting this into the legislature this spring, which means drafting is either already completed or well underway. So the the consultation process, which they've done everything they could to make sure nobody knows about it, um, uh, strikes me as being, uh, you know, the typical approach they take. This reminds me of when David Eby was responsible for the electoral reform and tried to, you know, push through and manipulate that process to get a result that they wanted. Fortunately, the public saw through that and gave a massive repudiation. But here we go again. And this has huge implications. And I want to be clear, Joe, I am very, very pro First Nations, especially reconciliation and accommodation where appropriate and working together. In fact, just last week, I was at the Northern Resource Forum and we rolled out a plan that BC United, formerly known as BC Liberals, would would say to the First Nations that we've got a plan called the Indigenous Loan Guarantee Program where we um, help uh, Indigenous uh, folks with the greatest challenge they have, which is access to capital, by providing loan guarantees on projects that they can then invest as equity partners and really uh, create the kind of uh, exciting opportunity to invest in natural resources, non-natural resources, etc. So I'm very, very uh, pro-Indigenous reconciliation. But this, this undermines a fundamental democratic principle. And the democratic principle is that the public lands belong to all of us and that the decisions that are being made must be made by representatives who are representing the interests of all British Columbians, including Indigenous peoples. And the direction they're going in is the absolute opposite.
And so what is the reason being given uh, to, to go through this process? And again, this was pointed out as well in, in some of the information that was put out by uh, the law firm with, with Robin Younger uh, that uh, I played there earlier, saying that, yes, the Supreme Court of Canada says consultation with Indigenous groups must happen, but nowhere in the Supreme Court of Canada ruling about this does it say that one particular group gets a veto. And and that's where they're making the, the difference here as, as far as what cha- what this would change. So do you know what was the, the reason given as to why this is even being put out there right now? Well, this this is a very important point. So Robert, uh, sorry, Robin Younger is probably the one of the top experts in Indigenous law in the country. So you have to listen carefully when he speaks out and expresses his dire concerns about this. So important to understand the courts, the Supreme Court, on multiple occasions, has made it very clear that that First Nations do not have a veto. They full stop. They've said that on multiple occasions. We must honor and accept. Uh, as we do, Section 35 of the Constitution, which is really quite unique in the world, that says there is actually a duty to consult and where appropriate accommodate First Nations interests under case law. And that's something that we would absolutely adhere and support and continue to support. But what the NDP are doing is going much farther than that. They are unilaterally deciding that they want to provide a veto right. And the concern with that is that if you have an MLA or a minister right now who has a, a, an obligation to act in the public interest. They, they, all the legislation is very clear. Ministers must act in the public interest. That means the broad public interest. But if you now bring in another group, and there are 204 First Nations in the province, to say that they also are now joint decision makers on a specific land issue, then you've now got a, you've now got a, a, a conflict problem. So that First Nation may very well and quite rightly uh, make a decision what they determine is in their interests. But that, that may differ very dramatically from what is in the broader public interest. And so that's why we're saying that for them to go forward with this without proper consultation, without being up front with the public, is absolutely unacceptable. And when we are talking about public land that is is in the province, I want to just play another uh, clip. Uh, Robin Younger, as you said, uh, one of the the, the best, uh, w- very uh, well versed in Indigenous law, uh, explaining exactly what we're talking about when we're looking at, at this changing the Land Act. What land is actually being discussed? What we're hearing from is um, primarily holders of ten years under the Land Act or people that are needing them from time to time. I mean, people talk about crown land, it's 95% of the province, but you know, for most people, they never deal with a crown a land act crown tenure. They don't really know what it means. But you know, if you ski in British Columbia, you're on a, on a land act tenure. If you put your boat or your canoe in at a lake or the ocean, um, you're probably on a land act tenure. If you are uh, going to a fishing lodge or bear viewing, you're gonna be using a Land Act tenure. So it really is an extremely broad, comprehensive uh, regime. So what do you what do you take from that then if this passes or if this goes ahead? What does that mean for the examples Robin just gave there and what we're talking about if we're talking about 95% of the land in the province? Well, that means that pretty much anything that happens on the province, skiing, fishing, uh, sledding, whatever the case may be, uh, could potentially be subject to uh, a First Nations veto. And that is really problematic when we're talking about public lands. And I want to be clear about this. Is not. I'm very concerned this would actually create 
um, negative impacts against First Nations, which would be the last thing we'd want to see as we go through the process of reconciliation. Uh, I want to give you an example. Do you remember the Joffrey Lake situation uh, yes. last summer? August long weekend, Lillawatt Nation unilaterally decided they were going to close down the park. The NDP did nothing for a month and a half, and all public access was, was cancelled in that park. That was one example. The more recent one is now what the NDP are doing in the Pender Harbor situation in terms of foreshore leases and docks and people realizing now that they're not going to be able to uh, uh, make decisions, uh, uh, repair, uh, replace, or do anything to do with their docks without getting uh, approval from the seashell ban. And I think the problem is that there is a broader public interest here. Um, and, and for them to rush this through without proper scrutiny, without proper public input is simply wrong. I will do everything I can to oppose it because it just goes against a fundamental democratic principle that I, I cannot and will not stand for. Uh, so looking at the timeline that is on the 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 slide presentation that the public can go and look. And again, it's at the engage.gov.bc website. Uh, it's saying that up until March 31st, the site is open. People can input to their opinions, their thoughts on this, that early February to March will be bill drafting. Uh, so I guess that's going to happen at the same time that people are still giving their, their input. And then the bill will be introduced in the spring legislative session. But going back to what you said off the top, does, does that timeline say to you that, that this is already been they they already know what the bill is going to look like absolutely they've been doing this under the radar in a very sneaky fashion uh we first you know got got a taste of it with the joffrey lakes we got a further taste of it with what's happening at pender harbor um you know with hundreds and hundreds of residents up there extremely upset to find out that they are shut out of any 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 reasonable input uh on on what's happening there and now we're going to see it here and I, they've already made up their minds. They're moving forward. And this perfunctory public consultation process is a joke. And frankly, it's, it's uh, beneath David Eby and the NDP to think that they could try and ram something like this through without proper consultation. This has massive implications for 95% of the land base in this province. And they cannot do it in this manner. And, and as I say, we will do everything we can as the official opposition. I can tell you BC and I will do everything we can to raise awareness and make sure we do everything we can to stop this. It's not right. Kevin Falcon, we'll leave it there for today. I appreciate your time. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you very much for having me, Jill. It's a really important topic. We know that there is the possibility of a 72-hour Metro Vancouver bus strike. That, if there is no deal reached between Coast Mountain Bus and the union that represents the transit supervisors, both the company and QP 4500 have agreed to work with mediator Vince Reddy. But the union has also said if no tentative deal is reached by next week, it will go ahead with another stage in job action, and that would take the form of a 72-hour strike. Well, where do things stand and what can we take from what we've seen so far? Stuart Prest is a lecturer in political science at UBC and joins us now on the line. Stuart, thank you so much for being here. Good afternoon, Joe. It's my pleasure. When you look at these negotiations, there have been several calls for the government to at least look at making transit an essential service. Doesn't look like that's going to happen right away. But when you look at this, what goes through your mind? 
Well, I think this is a, a difficult issue for the government in a number of ways. And so I think they're trying to satisfy a number of different competing pressures. Uh, and then that's why they're taking the approach that they're taking. On the one hand, they are really concerned about, I think, uh, voters becoming frustrated with the lack of transit service. So they really want to see this, this issue resolved quickly. I think if voters become sufficiently frustrated, they'll be looking for someone to blame. And, and the, 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 the provincial uh, NDP don't want to be that, that target. And, and so that's one concern. But at the same time, I think they, they really want to... Uh, Re, uh, create space for for negotiation to allow the 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 labor negotiation process to 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 play out uh, play uh, its course and to not uh, short circuit those those labor negotiations and then on the other other hand they are also uh, con- uh, concerned about the, those bottom line uh, issues where the, the province is ultimately going to be on the hook for some measure of, uh, of cost outruns if, uh, if TransLink is, is consistently running a deficit. And so uh, there, there is going to be understandably a concern to, to see that the, the prices, uh, the costs don't continue to, to escalate uh, for TransLink. Uh, with the calls for the provincial government to get involved, we did hear from the Labour Minister and it was Harry Baines who announced a few days ago that veteran mediator Vince Reddy would be working with both the Coast Mountain Bus Company and the union uh, for about six days. Uh, not binding recommendations. So either uh, they, the, the good news comes of that, that there is a tentative agreement. But if not, he issues non-binding recommendations and then both sides have to decide or they have a few days to decide if they accept or reject those. Is that about the level you would expect at this point for the BC government to get involved? Yeah, I think I think that's a, about where I would expect them to come down. So again, that idea of really wanting to to be a, a helpful fixer, trying to to uh, usher along these negotiations, so so that there isn't any any time wasted, and relying on the uh, the, the mediator to to usher the the conversation along as quickly as is as is feasible. But but again, by by trying to uh, create space for for negotiations to to continue and not to impose a solution uh, or to to, to uh, create the space in which a solution is is imposed, thereby short-circuiting the negotiations and, and either leaving uh, TransLink in, a, in a, a more precarious financial position or leaving uh, the members of the union feeling like they've been hung out to dry by the government. So, so they're, again, walking that, that real tightrope here and, and choosing a, a path of... of uh, uh, again, supportive, uh, uh, helping the negotiations without getting actively involved. Because again, like you, you said as well, there there is a lot of money at stake here. Uh, I mean, it's different depending on, on who's talking about it. Uh, TransLink or Coast Mountain Bus. Uh, we heard from the CEO of TransLink saying that if the union got the, the pay hike that it was asking for, that could potentially lead to huge costs as well in, in other unions or in other parts of TransLink. So, so how closely do you think would the BC government be watching that to see exactly what is decided or, or what any potential tentative deal could look like? Well, I'm sure they're, they're monitor, monitoring the situation quite closely and uh, and uh, and not looking to effectively find some kind of blank check for for a, a future negotiations. And there's an awareness that if if the, the problems were to step in and provide the uh, uh, additional 
support for for this particular negotiation, financial support, just to to bring it to a quick resolution, then they are going to create that that expectation for all future negotiations, and and there might be cries of uh, of hypocrisy there, given that other uh, labor disputes, uh, transit disputes in in and around the Lower Mainland in the Fraser Valley and elsewhere were uh, allowed to continue for a considerable length of time, and so there might be a sense that perhaps Vancouver is being treated differently. So they're going to want to be wary of those kinds of criticisms as well. Right, because we did see the transit strike that impacted the Fraser Valley, which didn't get as much attention as a shutdown in Metro Vancouver. And as someone mentioned, uh, someone called in yesterday as well, saying, well, the Comox uh, Valley and the Courtney transit strike, which I believe they now have a tentative deal, it didn't get a lot of attention. So is that an, an issue as well? Like you said, they can't be seen to perhaps be playing favorites or stepping in and treating one as more important than the other? I think they'd be concerned about those accusations and uh, and appearing to to favor the the, uh, the the dense metro area, the boat-rich Vancouver area, um, uh, might be seen as, as alienating to those those other regions of, of the province where the NDP is really hopeful to to either secure gains they've made recently or perhaps even extend their their uh, um, uh, inroads further. And, and so I think uh, that that is uh, uh, yet another part of this multifaceted puzzle that the the government is confronting. Does it matter that we're coming up to an election? Like you said, the public mood could turn sour, uh, especially if there is a shutdown, if they're allowed as well to perhaps picket at SkyTrain stations and have an even bigger shutdown of transit services. How concerned would the government be that the public would be angry and would be looking at them? Uh, again, it, it is going to be one of those things that they that is on the government's mind, but it's also going to be on the, the minds of, uh, of union leaders. It's going to be on the minds of the executives in transit. If this situation really goes south, then uh, then the public will understandably be looking for someone to to blame. And uh, and, and given that the, the provincial election is. Uh, expected to to be this, this fall, then then voters may look for the first opportunity they have to express that frustration. So that's going to be another concern as well. That that if there is blame to go around, everyone's going to be looking for ways to to ensure that it doesn't fall on them. Does it put a lot of pressure on um, Vince Reddy uh, being appointed, being elevated to that role of special mediator? And uh, I know we, whenever you hear that name, it, it generally goes along with, uh, well, if he can't find a solution, nobody can. But uh, does it put a lot of pressure on um, Vince Reddy to get in there and find a solution and, and kind of save this? I, I think it, it certainly uh, will. Uh, Mr. Reddy will will be uh, uh, keenly aware of the the importance of, of the situation, but at the same time, this is a situation not unlike uh, uh, the, the other uh, negotiations that he has been party to previously, and and so I think the the lines will not be that dissimilar. It's just a question of trying to to help the actors involved understand where where the compromise ultimately has to fall and where everyone is going to have to uh, make some some concessions in order for the the end result that everyone wants, which is business as usual, to to resume. And so I think it, there's certainly pressure there on the mediator, but ultimately it's up to to the, to the principals in the negotiation to, to make those concessions. And there's only so much a mediator can do to help that process along. Well, we will certainly be waiting and watching to see what happens next in this dispute. Stuart Prest, we'll leave it there for today. Thank you so much for your time. It's always a pleasure. Thank you.
Well, remember when we used to talk quite a bit about the Arrive Can app, and then there were questions about the cost of the app and, well, why it costs so much. Well, some new information has been uncovered, and it is all part of a story in the Globe and Mail. And Bill Curie joins me now, Deputy Ottawa Bureau Chief with the Globe and Mail. Bill, thank you so much for being here. Well, thanks for the invitation, Jeff. Good afternoon. Good afternoon to you. So the headline kind of says it all. ArriveCam bids regularly listed subcontractors who never did work. And this was one of the findings of the procurement watchdog. So can you back up a little bit and tell us kind of what is this all about? Yeah, so a couple of years ago, the Globe did some stories about the cost of this app. Uh, it's, uh, it's on, it was on pace then to go to $54 million. It's probably uh, increased by beyond that now. They haven't officially updated it yet. Um, and that raised a lot of questions after that figure got out there. A lot of people who work in this field just couldn't quite understand how it's possible for an app like this to cost that much. And um, we had also reported about some of the ways that uh, the government hired contractors to do this work that raised some questions particularly this one company that at the time didn't have a whole lot of profile, GC Strategies, got the most outsourcing work to help build the and maintain the app. And it turns out that they're just two people, two people based uh, just outside of Ottawa that work from their home. And they don't actually do any IT work themselves. They, they land, they win contracts, and then they find other people, subcontractors, to actually do the work. And so after those stories, um, Parliament asked the Auditor General to do an investigation and they asked uh, the ombudsperson uh, of uh, procurement to also do a study. And those are now, almost a year and a half later, uh, surfacing. So we're going to have the Auditor General's report on August 12th. That's coming up. And this is kind of like a preview here because we're getting the procurement ombudsperson's report that, that was released yesterday. And it gives a window into how companies like GC Strategies get these bids. And, and so one of his main concerns was, um, part of the process is when these companies like GC Strategies try to bid on a project or a contract, they'll present the government with a list of contractors and they'll say, well, we've got all these uh, folks who are really highly experienced, they've got great resumes, and that helps them win the contract. And what this found is that 76% of the time, those people who are on these lists that help these companies win the contract ended up actually not doing any work. Instead, they found other people, likely cheaper people, to do the work. And so that kind of really raises a lot of questions about the process. Um, other questions were found about, you know, GC Strategies won this contract even though they didn't have the proper security clearances for entering, handling documents. They won three sole, sole source, like non-competitive contracts, and then they won a fifth or fourth one competitively, but uh, it was worth $25 million. The ombudsperson says, you know, it was crafted and written in such a way that only GC Strategies could have ever won this contract, and other companies must have figured that out because nobody else applied. Only GC Strategies applied. So, again, that you know raises issues about this. Like you, you know, sometimes even when it is a competitive uh, competition, it's not really that competitive. Uh, so many, uh, so many questions uh, coming from this. And like you said, so the Auditor General will release her report, so, which should have more information when that comes out uh, on February 12th. Do we know much, though, about GC Strategies other than, like you said, it's a company with two people. Uh, they often subcontracted. But do we know anything else really about this company? 
Yeah, so at the time, we didn't know a whole lot about them uh, a couple of years ago when we had the first story. But then last uh, fall, uh, at the Globe, we did some more reporting. And this other company called uh, Bottler from Montreal came to the Globe and really shed a lot of light into the interactions between GC Strategies and officials at the Canada Border Services Agency. And they weren't working on a live cam, but they were dealing with the same people. They were dealing with Christian Firth, the managing partner of GC Strategies, and uh, some individuals at the CBSA who worked on a live cam. So um, they had flagged concerns uh, internally first to the head of the CBSA, saying that these interactions that are going on between GC Strategies and the CBSA, they just didn't feel, they didn't seem right to them. They thought that uh, people should look into that. And they also flagged issues with the way that um, GC Strategies and other uh, IT staffing firms were handling their resumes. So in, in the case of Baldwin, they were saying, like, you know, one of them, the CEO of the company, she was saying, you know, a two, two-month summer job she had way back when she was a student at Deloitte was in, inflated, unbeknownst to her, in, in documents submitted to the government as if she'd had this extensive career at Deloitte and, and all, all these qualifications that she just didn't have. So, you know, she flagged that as a major concern. Like why, are, why are these staffing companies presenting these resumes to land contracts that are not not true? And, and the other, Amir Moore, the other... Um, person, the co-founder of uh, Baller, he found through ATIP that uh, GC Strategies had submitted a, f- a document that claimed he worked for a, a company that didn't even exist. So, you know, those were small examples of, you know, resumes being submitted that didn't seem to act accurate. When Christian first at GC Strategies was called to committee about this a couple months ago, he claimed that that was an isolated incident. But this this report that we got this week makes it sound like it was not isolated. This is actually a pretty common practice. Hmm. And it seems as well, and I know you've written about this, but but some criticism over the policies, not only the contracting out and how uh, that all uh, played out, as you've just explained, but that a lot of the contracts that were related to ArriveCan were not disclosed online. They didn't meet the requirements for disclosure and transparency. Yeah, I found it surprising um, the extent of it as reported this week because, I mean, certainly trying to report on this stuff, uh, myself and my colleagues, we've we've, uh, had a difficult time trying to make sense of what is posted online. Sometimes things don't line up. There's various places where you can see contracting documents and and something just didn't make sense. And, uh, well, now we know why. The ombudsperson is saying for about 41% of the time, key ArriveCan contract documents that were supposed to be made public as a matter of course, according to the government policy, just were not being released. So for uh, reporters or anybody in the public who wants to keep track of government spending, and, and contracting is a key avenue for government spending, billions and billions of dollars are spent every year in federal contracts, it's just essentially impossible to track the money because the, these contract uh, dollars and details are not being disclosed even though they're supposed to. And the company, Bottler, like you mentioned, that has helped shed some light on this and and certainly raised concerns about this. Did you get the impression from from the people at Bottler that that at least this information is coming out now or that that some of their their concerns have been validated by what we're learning now? Yeah, they they were definitely pleased with the pleasantly surprised with the ombudsperson's uh, report. Um, because that office, their reports can tend to be fairly dry compared to an auditor general's report. But essentially, they feel like 
this shows that the issues that they flagged with resumes that were not accurate and inflated work experience to win bids um, wasn't something that just happened to them. This seems to be something that is uh, fairly widespread. This was about ArriveCam, but you know you certainly get the sense that uh, this is goes beyond ArriveCam because a lot of these contracts, it's a little bit of there's a lot of overlap, like uh, you know. GC Strategies and other companies, they win these really large, sometimes they're described in the committee hearings as omnibus contracts, where it's just very something for very general things like IT services. And from that, then the government can can pick from it and, and fund projects like ArriveCan without ever having to have a public competition for that specific thing because they have this general contract. So a lot of, a lot of questions about transparency uh, when it comes to how these are awarded and, and doled out. And it, it seems like, really, and I know this is oversimplifying it, but it seems like we're talking about scenarios, and again, with, with a company like GC Strategies, this two-person company, getting millions and millions of dollars from the federal government, then contracting out to, to, and, and banking a lot of that money, whereas if, if you would think there would be transparency, or you would want, I suppose, as taxpayers to have that transparency, and the question, why are you spending millions of dollars on contracts that clearly don't need to cost that much. Yeah, exactly. And, and you know, there's a, a genuine deb- debate to be had because you, you don't want to do everything in-house. Sometimes if there's a very specific need that the government has, it's only going to last for um, six months. You don't need to hire a full-time person to do that if you can find uh, contractors to do that. But the question is, you know, why is it why is it so cumbersome to hire a contractor that the government feels that they need these in between people to do it, and then they collect a commission of between 15 and 30 percent on these multi-million dollar contracts, and they don't do any work themselves. They just win the contract and find people to do the work. Um, you know, so that raises questions. And also, what is the appropriate compensation? It doesn't seem like that has ever been discussed or written down. So I think as a result of these uh, these reviews that are happening in Parliament and the Auditor General. I think the government's going to have to narrow that down. Like what is a reasonable profit if, for these um, middlemen that essentially just find staff to work for the government? And do you think, will, will there be a lot more information or are you expecting that we will get some of those answers when the, the full report, the Auditor General's report, is released on February 12th? I think so. And the, the Auditor General tends to take a broader view of things as well this this uh, ombuds report was kind of like a statement of facts with not a whole lot of interpretation. So the Auditor General usually goes a step beyond that, looks a bit broader at themes and, and, and that kind of thing. Um, also, the, you know, the Auditor General's office is just a much bigger operation. So they would have had a lot of people working on this, uh, really digging through. Uh, has a lot more power, too. Uh, the Auditor General is an independent office of Parliament, which the procurement ombuds person is not. So there's some independence and uh, and uh, more outspokenness with an Auditor General's report. So I, you know, I don't know what she's going to have to say, but I'm, I'm certainly interested to hear. As uh, are a lot of people, I think. Bill yes. Curry, we'll leave it there for today, but thank you so much. Appreciate you coming on the show. All the best. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the Jill Bennett Show podcast. Can't wait for the latest episode to drop? Tune in to the Jill Bennett Show live from noon till 3 on 980 CKNW. Have a question or comment? Send me an email, jill at cknw.com. Thanks again for listening.